You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. You know, last week uh, or so, I was talking about urine, which I know was really exciting for everybody. And I briefly mentioned mitochondria uh, because the mitochondria in your cells is where respiration happens it's and respiration is responsible. It is powerhouse of the cell, um, but it's also, like I said, responsible for some of the water in your urine as a byproduct of that. So I touched on that because I knew that this week I wanted to talk specifically about mitochondria as my topic. Fun. Mitochondria are amazing and fascinating. I think a lot of us uh, learned and then forgot about mitochondria, like in about a somewhere around ninth yeah. grade, like a ninth life grade science biology class, right? For most people, I think. They, there it you go. Did become a meme a few years ago, and it was mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. That's it, and it's true. You know, I think we we probably learned other parts of the cell, like the nucleus and the ever fun to say endoplasmic reticulum, my mm -hmm. favorite part. Um, Ribosomes, but I don't think. Yeah, I think because of how it's presented in schools, it, like it just becomes boring and you gloss over it and don't understand how amazing the mitochondria really are. So let's do a deep dive here, okay? You'll often hear uh, mitochondria referred to as an organelle, which drives me crazy because authors just move right on past that word. Like it's a word we use every day. And once they say that, we're, you're supposed to be like, oh yeah, an organelle, of course. Mm -hmm. Normal people don't know what that is, okay? So let's go over what right. that is really quick. An organelle is just a fancy word for a subcellular structure that performs a task in the body. So think about organs as macrostructures that perform tasks, uh, like pumping your blood. Uh, you can think of organelles as like mini organs inside a cell that make it do what it does. Okay. Okay. So that's an organelle. Yeah, that was so always mitochondria... my understanding of it. Perfect. You're 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 ahead of the class. Well, I was a bio major, so I have a, I have there a leg up go. there. Yeah, same There's something here. beyond the ninth this. grade understanding most of us did. So mitochondria is one of those systems. So right there, now we know that mitochondria is a structure in our cells, and it does a job. And the job it does is super important. Uh, like Rachel was saying, it's the powerhouse of the cell. It makes chemical energy, and so uh, the chemical energy they make is called ATP. The actual process I'm not going to go into because it's super complicated uh, and it's all kinds of chemistry, but um, Kirk, I touched on the basics of it last week. Yeah. To, to school? Yeah. I'm not going to go into the chemistry, okay? Um, what basically what I touched on last week is that it is the process of taking sugars and breaking them down into carbon dioxide and water, uh, and you're getting energy out of that, uh, that chemical process. So it does take oxygen to do this, uh, and the process is called respiration. Really cool side note for everybody. Um, if you like, put your hand, I like to put it on the back of my neck. It's kind of one of the best spots to feel the heat in your body. When you feel that heat, that is basically you know, a byproduct of this process. It's it keeping our bodies warm. 
And when you're feeling that heat, that is literally stored heat from the sun that has been converted into sugars by plants. And then we eat them and our bodies convert that back to heat. So you're feeling the heat of the sun when you feel the heat on your body. Huh. Wow. Which is so it's cool. It's like one of, one of my favorite things. Like, you know, really the, the heat in our body is really just the heat from the sun. So... It all we're comes solar back to powered sun. is what you're here what you're saying. We are. Yeah. We're absolutely solar powered. Yeah. As are most creatures Actually. on Earth, although not the ones at the deep sea vents, as we learned. And right. maybe we're getting there. So mitochondria are found in almost every cell of our body. Um, and here's a one of the weird first weird things about them. Um, the one cells where they're not found is in male sperm cells. So pretty much like all cells in the human body are diploid cells, meaning they have two copies of chromosomes. You get one set from your mom and one set from your dad. Sex cells are different, like eggs and sperm. They're haploid, meaning they only have one set of unpaired chromosomes. The X chromosome is considered the female chromosome, and the Y is the male. Now, because there's no mitochondria in sperm cells, you have the same mitochondria as your mom, and they are different than what your dad has. You don't share your mitochondria with your dad at all. Huh. Now, what I with what I just told you, you would be forgiven for then assuming that the DNA for mitochondria is on the X chromosome because you get it from your mom. No. But this is wrong, and it's so cool, the reason why. So mitochondrial DNA is completely separate from human DNA. Isn't there... Or what you would maybe call nuclear DNA instead of human DNA. Um, But I prefer calling it human DNA and mitochondrial <laughs> DNA for very important reasons. Cause they really are separate things. I think I know where you're going with this and I don't want to spoil it for everybody. So yeah, I'm I think you might, perfect. I think I might know too. I think, you know, as well. So you only get your mitochondrial DNA from your mother. Um, it is in the egg and it is completely separate from the rest of the DNA that makes you, you. And I think the first time, I became aware of this was when I heard about the famous cloned sheep, Dolly. Oh, yeah. You guys remember Dolly? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Dolly was the first, like, big organism to be, like, cloned. Turns out, though, she was not an exact clone. They took DNA from one sheep, and they took an egg from another sheep, and they took all the DNA out of that sheep, so it was just basically like an empty egg. And they injected this DNA in there. I'm grossly simplifying. And basically a new resulting sheep was born that was exactly the same as the original they had taken the DNA from. Except they forgot the mitochondria, the mitochondria mm-hmm. was not the same as Dolly's uh do you call it a parent? I'm not quite sure. Progenitor. The, 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 the progenitor, is. thank you. Uh it had the mitochondria of the donor sheep, not the sort of original sheep. So why on earth would this be? Well, the DNA of our mitochondria is completely separate from all the other DNA in our body. And the answer to why this is so is because technically we are a chimera. So the term chimera comes from Greek mythology. A chimera was a fire-breathing monster with a lion's head, a goat's body, and a serpent's tail. Now, I am not implying that we have any of those things. All right. But I wanted but a, a lion's chimera, head and I know, wings. I know. It's just, you know, only in your dreams. Uh, so a chimera, though, is a hybrid between two different species. Humans are a chimera, but the reason we don't think about it that way 
is that so is pretty much every other living animal on Earth. So here's what we think happened. It turns out that mitochondria are awfully similar to aerobic prokaryotes that we can still find in the wild today. And I know I just threw a bunch of big words out there. Going back to biology class, take a big deep breath. A prokaryote is a single-celled organism. Thank you. Be calm. A single-celled organism that has neither a distinct nucleus nor specialized organelles. And hey, we just learned what organelles are. So uh, bacteria and cyanobacteria are the most commonly cited examples of prokaryotes. So what evolutionary biologists theorized happened long, long ago is that a symbiosis developed between an aerobic prokaryote, basically like a bacteria, and a nucleated cell. So a cell that had some sort of little primitive critter that had a nucleus, like a unicellular uh, critter that had a nucleus. And usually these little critters, picture like an amoeba, for example, would like surround and swallow up some of this bacteria and basically eat it. Um, but in this um, case, um. <laughs> that didn't happen. And so the prokaryote, you know, benefited from being inside a protected, you know, cell. And the aerobic prokaryote had this amazing new ability inside it of something that could create energy, which is what this, uh, this prokaryote could do, or this early version of the mitochondria. It basically became a win-win symbiosis between this very primitive life form that suddenly swallowed something up and was like, oh, hey, you know what? Instead of digesting this thing, it's giving me energy. That's pretty cool. I'm going to kind of hang on to this. So when those cells divided through asexual reproduction, the nuclear DNA of that single cell organism was replicated and split in half. But the mitochondria or the proto-mitochondria at this point also replicated and split into the new cells as well. So if you can imagine a world back then that was dominated by prokaryotes, basically just like bacterial life on Earth, and then one of them figures out how to live inside of a cell and create a new creature that was capable of so much more, suddenly we have what we call eukaryotic life, and it took off like mad. It was just an explosion. It was super successful, so successful that like all animals that you can think of that are alive today are examples of this eukaryotic life. And they still carry on the tradition of having this little, you know, uh, thing inside of every single one of our cells that gives us the energy we use to be talking on podcasts and walking around and, and living. Uh, so it's uh, such a cool thing that this has been going on for so long. And the mitochondria has its own DNA. It's now completely dependent upon us. We can't take mitochondria out and have it live on its own. But it's basically this cool example of how so long ago uh, these two life forms came together to create something much grander. And we carry it with us to this day in each and every one of our cells. We basically are this chimera of these two species that came together and found a great benefit by being together. It's such an amazing story. And I don't know if you were going to talk about this or if you were kind of wrapping up, but basically they think the same thing happened with plants. Uh, with like except with, with like a single celled al algae type thing um, that could do photosynthesis instead of respiration, right? Right, right. So, I mean, th this has happened a number yeah. of times in the past and it's, it's how things have become more complex over time. And it's it kind of, like I think we talk about on this podcast a lot and just in general is that um, we like to put things in the little boxes when we study them. Nature is a spectrum. 
you know, and there is so much, there's so much weirdness out there. It's why we started this podcast Truly. is to talk about all the bizarre, strange stuff out there. And, uh, it seems like strange, you know, relationships and, um, you know, symbioses and whatnot are almost more common than not in nature, because that's the more complex you can become to do things that allow you to outcompete your, um, your peers, <laughs> if you will, allows you to be successful uh, in nature. And so we see really cool uh, things like this. But I, I think it's cool. You know, it's something we learn about in school and then promptly forget about. And I don't think a lot of schools really teach how amazing it really is that we have like this other, essentially another species living inside us with completely separate DNA from ours. That just that just blows my mind. Yes. Yeah, I didn't learn cool. that until college and I was teaching it at the well, I wasn't quite teaching it then, but I eventually taught all of that. And it's fascinating and just mind boggling. Well I'll tell you what, Rachel, I hope you can get your mind unboggled because after the break we're coming back and we're trying to tell the story. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. So... Welcome back, everyone. Now, I want you to imagine you are hanging out at the bottom of the ocean. Not like the bottom, bottom of the ocean, like Mariana's Trench bottom, but just by like right. a coral reef. And you're a fish. So like five feet? Right, like five feet, right. Okay. I feel like you uh, picked a lot of sea creatures. I do love the ocean. <laughs> um, so you're a fish. And as you're swimming, you get a little bit tired, and you kind of go close to the sandy bottom. Uh-oh. Well, I feel like something bad is and going to happen now. That's a trap. All of a sudden, something long strikes out at you, and like a guillotine, you are now two. Oh. Oh my, I've been bifurcated? You've been bifurcated. <laughs> Yikes. You are very dead. But what that seems reasonable. But what hit you? What animal is now eating you at this part of the I ocean? I think the answer would depend on how big I am. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Generalize like not a big fish. Okay. So okay. what hit you was something called a bobbit worm. Have either Ooh, of you heard of a bobbit worm? Is it I have not. No, but is it related to John Wayne Bobbit? Or Lorena Bobbitt. That it the... was named after John and Luane Bobbitt. Yes. No. Partially. Oh, Lord. I already don't like this one. Oh. It's also oh, dear. called a Should we... sand striker. Our, young, our younger we listeners don't know why we're cringing. Do a little explanation of who those folks are. Yeah. I didn't do research on Bob and, or John and Luane Bobbitt. Do you want to explain? Um, may I? Not really. May I? Victoria. Go for okay. it, Victoria. Well, I don't want to go too long here. I could, I could, but 
in sometime in the 90s, I feel like around 91 or 92, this story hit all the papers in the U.S. and all the nightly news outlets because it was so extreme and mind-boggling. Basically, um, John Wayne and Lorena Bobbitt were married, and John Wayne uh, was an abusive husband. And uh, at one, one evening, Lorena reached her breaking point, and while John was asleep, took her revenge by taking a knife and slicing off his penis, at which point she went for a drive and tossed it out of the window into a field. Um, the authorities were able to retrieve the penis and surgically reattach it to Mr. Bobbitt, uh, who then went on to have a, I think, relatively short career in the pornography industry. Mm. No pun intended. Indeed. The, the pun was intended. It was intended, though, yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah, snippy snip. All right, so what do we got going on, Rachel? So this is, it's also known as the sand striker, okay? Now, it was found uh, in, it's been a known animal. It's been around, uh, it was discovered in about 1790. So it's been around for a long, long time. Wow, okay. And it's a poly, oh, my gosh. Polykeet? Polycate bristle worm. Okay. Now okay. I have an I have a description here, but I sent you both a picture. Oh boy. So I want you to open this go. picture. Pictures. And I'm right, going to talk a little bit about this. No. Oh, that's um it's got some pretty colors on it. It's uh Kind of that doesn't make up for what it looks like, though. Ooh. The, oh, my God. How do I um, begin to describe so this? So it's got many segments. Its yep. head is a very complicated-looking contraption with sort of three antennae kind of looking things coming out of the same point, so sort of forming a, yep. um, like the top part of a cross. And they're striped black and white, and then there's some very iridescent-looking little maybe eyes... And then there's flanges sticking out from the head area below that, kind of like, um, kind of like ribs almost. Mm-hmm. And then you get down, and there are a lot of segments, all looking rainbowy iridescent. In a yeah, the rainbowy iridescence is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough to save uh, the overall image. It's sort of like. Uh, the proverbial lipstick on a pig. Uh, this is, uh, if this was didn't have the rainbow colors on it, this is nightmare fuel. This is something yes. that would, uh, if it was bigger, I'm assuming this is quite small. If this was bigger, uh, I would imagine this being some sort of horror movie devouring people. Yeah, I could see that. It's 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 terrifying. So I have a few things to tell you. So my yeah. description that I came up with was in. Think about an armless mantis shrimp that had lots of antenna. So, Victoria, okay. you said that it might have, like, two eyes. Mm. It was a they don't to have tell. any eyes. Oh. They have Whoa. no eyes. They have... It is a... Uh, it has no eyes, but it has about five antenna. They are super, super sensitive. So, it's an okay, ambush. Okay, I can see the five now, yep. Yeah. yeah. So it's an ambush predator, and it's found on the sandy bottoms of coral reefs, 
or places where it can get lots and lots of prey. And it hunts primarily at night. And it hides its body in a burrow. So only its head is showing. So only its antenna. And its mandible uh, is within its body. They hold their mandible inside of their body. And as soon as a fish uh, comes near their antenna, senses that something is near, it bursts out. And its its mandible, the retractable mandibles, are have razor sharp spikes fringing the edges of the mandibles, and are strong enough that it can snap some fish in half. Okay. What what what's our size reference on this? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. seeing a photo. I know the listeners aren't. To me, if you told me this thing was only an inch long, I'd be like, okay, it seems reasonable. If you told me it was 20 feet long, I I would never come I would within run 20 screaming. miles of the ocean. What what are we talking here, size? When you say a fish, we're talking about like a minnow-sized fish, or how big are these? So, um, these Uh-oh. range in length. Uh, oh, no. They're about an inch wide. Okay. 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 Whoa. Uh, oh. They range in length from about 10 centimeters or four inches. Oh, okay. okay, that's pretty and long. The longest Uh-oh. that they've ever found is oh, no. about three meters, also oh, known God. as about ten feet long. No. Oh. But but hold on. But like, ten feet long, but still only an inch wide. Still only an inch wide, yes. It's not gonna be able to snap me in half. Okay. No. I'm still going I'm still going in the, I'm still going in. <laughs> Yeah, so the the longest, technically speaking, it was 9.81 feet in length, but oh. still. And it, it's... That's amazing. <laughs> it's wow. so amazing. Uh, when I was doing research, I'm like, wow, this looks really screwy. Gotta t- do this on the podcast. And then I found out how long it could get, and I'm like, oh, that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> um so its whole body is covered in a hard exoskeleton and it ranges in color ranging from like deep purple to a black with that metallic color kind of speckled in um and this actually lives generally in the atlantic ocean but also in the indo-pacific ocean um generally around like coral reefs or places where there's more high fish population Fish, yeah. It also looks, yeah. I just want to point out for those who can't see it at home, uh, I know this is like the segments of its body, but it looks like it's totally ripped. Like, oh, yeah. it doesn't have a six pack abs. It looks right. like it has like a 22 pack abs. And I'm assuming if this is the nine foot version, it's got a uh, like 80,000 pack abs. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I realize yeah. those are not abs. Those are segments of its body. But, yep, uh, that's it segments kinda, of its, got its that kind of look. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's horrifying. And, uh, how long do you think uh, this animal would live? Uh, a couple years, maybe? I don't know. I'm going to go somewhere less than 30 million. Oh, well. I feel like that's conservative. <laughs> uh, so its lifespan is anywhere from three to five years. Um, okay. Okay. I, I will right say. Order of magnitude. I was off by several factors. Yeah, yeah Victoria was closer. 
Um, and then a random fun fact, and then I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, some aquariums actually, they're really, really well camouflaged animals. And what they'll do <laughs> is sometimes they will come in on the coral that gets uh, mm. import, brought in for their reefs and everything for the exhibits uh-huh. and sometimes for decades fish will just randomly go missing and they won't know what's happening and eventually <laughs> they'll find one of these bobbit worms <laughs> hanging out but they didn't know because they're so well camouflaged they barely ever have more than just their antenna hanging out of their burrow why are they so shiny I, then it's a good question I wonder if that's just sort of the, in this particular photo, the light is just mm. catching it like that, but you wouldn't yeah. see that. I mean, think about a, sort of like how a colorful a coral reef is. Like, that true. really lends true too. to blending in really well. I used to work at an aquarium that had an artificial reef in it. Uh, and we, as far as I know, didn't have these. But we had a similar thing that would happen with uh, moray eels <laughs> that we did have that would hang out. And once in a while, a fish would come too close, they'd be like, all right, and just just take a giant gouge right out of the side. Those things have terrifying jaws. Yeah, they do. Well, that's all I've got for you. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, it's going to be Victoria. All right, we're back. And our final, final creature of the evening is an animal that has a, has a soft place in my heart because I, I have a soft place in my heart for animals that have a bad reputation. I'm not going to do any kind of complicated, cute introduction here. I am talking about hyenas. I'm here for it. Oh, they're boy. so lovely. Well, if you, if what you know about <laughs> hyenas is mostly from the lion King, which I feel is probably the case for many Americans, mm-hmm. you probably have a uh, no, pretty negative impression yeah. Uh, you know, and there are a lot of myths and confusion about them, but they have a lot of really interesting things. Uh, for one thing, they look more like dogs, but they are actually more closely related to cats. Um, there are four species, the spotted, striped, and brown hyenas, and there's one called the aardwolf, which actually looks a bit more like a jackal and is a bit more distantly related. Um, but if you think about those Lion King ones, you're thinking about the spotted hyena, Crocuda, Crocuda, which is, uh, it's the most numerous one and it's the most widespread one in Africa. And that's the one I'm mainly going to be talking about here because they have some extra, extra weird features. They sure do. Kirk obviously knows where I'm going with this. (laughs) (laughs) I am not really sure. I know, I think they're more related to cats, right? You said. Yeah, they are more related to cats. Oh, Rachel, this is going to be. Oh, yeah. Buckle your seatbelt. Before we get to the really, really good stuff, I have a few other things to talk about with them because there's lots of really cool things about hyenas. So uh, striped and brown hyenas are, in fact, largely scavengers, but this is an inaccurate perception of the spotted hyena. They're mainly predators. In fact, studies show that they hunt as much as lions, and in fact, lions are often the ones stealing hyena kills instead of the other way around. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Another thing that... surprised me. People know about hyenas as they slink around, um, which is not exactly true. They they kind of look like they have really long legs in front and really tiny legs in back. 
And in fact, their front legs are a bit longer, but the difference is not so big. And it's, it seems really much greater because they have a, a long neck and huge, massive muscular head and shoulders that they use for dragging a prey and tearing it apart. And also their butt is kind of rounded off without, without um, angles to keep predators from grabbing them. <laughs> which I think is hilarious. <laughs> nice. Um, That's amazing. So the shape kind of makes them look like they're cowardly and slicking, but they are in fact endurance runners. So they, they run down their prey. Um, okay. And they will occasionally tussle with lions. So I wouldn't call that very cowardly either. That's pretty fierce. Nope. I wouldn't tussle with a lion. Nor I, if I could possibly help it. Well, I will also jump in and say, nor I. Yeah. <laughs> Um, those one, those hyenas in the Lion King were pretty stupid, but in fact, hyenas are quite intelligent. And I guess the, the other main thing that people know about hyenas is that they make crazy laughing sounds. And this is in fact true. They, uh, they usually do that when they're fighting over food, but they have lots of other noises that they make too. Okay. And they are amazing eaters. If you're into nose to tail eating, uh, hyenas are even better than you because they can eat the entire carcass. <laughs> just say, hold on, hold on. Nose if you're into nose-to-tail eating, is that like a thing people are into? Yeah, that like, I, it's a, a, I guess it's kind of a foodie thing where people talk about using the whole animal, not just, you know, the muscle okay, meat, but I, organ meat and all that stuff. Okay, I've heard okay, of that. I was that. thinking like the hair and like, you well, know, the well, Technically the speaking, like you want to you wanna be as like... Um, friendly as possible you want to use all of the parts that you can sure yeah that's the but, idea uh i have never heard of it referred to as nose to tail eating yeah that's new that's that's what the the cool kids are calling it <laughs> clearly rachel and i are not the cool kids Kirk, we were never the cool kids i was for like five minutes mm -hmm. i think but no no never, <laughs> never. At any rate, hyenas really do eat the whole thing, including crushing up and digesting all the bones. They can oh extract, my gosh. Good yeah, for good for them. They can extract everything except the inorganic bone material. So, in fact, their poop is mostly just a white powder, which is all right. pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, a group of thirty-five hyenas was once observed to eat an adult zebra in thirty-six minutes flat. So think, about, yeah. think about what that scene must have looked like. No. This is including the bones and hooves wow. and everything. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm impressed. Hey, a half hour ago, there was a zebra over here. How, where'd it go? I don't a little know. wet spot on the savannah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Evaporating. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. I'm tempted to call the episode Wet Spot on the Savannah, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> okay, now we're getting to the good stuff. So, spotted hyenas... We weren't already there? <laughs> oh, Rachel, no. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> spotted hyenas are highly social animals, and they have a matriarchal society, which is somewhat unusual for mammals. And the, hy the hyena females are, in fact, significantly bigger, and they weigh, like, 10 to 15% more than the males, which is very unusual for a mammal. Usually it's the males that are larger in, mm -hmm. in mammaldom. Uh, 
And the females are socially dominant and they have a very complex society. They actually have a more complex social life than any other carnivore, including wolves. And in fact, they're about as complex as baboon society, which is pretty amazing. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. Now we're getting, now we're getting to the, to the good stuff. You Kirk looks basically... like he's about to burst a brain, a vessel in his forehead or something. Oh man. Just, just go ahead. You basically cannot tell from looking at their genitalia, which one is male and which one is female. Why, why would that be, Victoria? That would be because females have a pseudo-penis. Their labia are, are uh, fused to form a pseudo-scrotum with fatty pads. And so they're the only mammal without an external vaginal opening. The pseudo-penis is a gigantic clitoris that has a single urogenital canal going down the middle. That is a combined vagina and urethra. So this is all to say that the female hyena pees, has sex, and gives birth through her pseudo-penis. I'm just going to let that one sink in for a moment. What do you uh, make of that, Rachel? I... (laughs) I mean, I'm going back to my my original comment. Girl power, I suppose. (laughs) Good well, for them. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem like the best no physical it, arrangement. It doesn't So we're no, gonna get into some of the complications here. Yeah. Mating is like, very Oh, go ahead, Rachel. Uh, well, I mean, it it sounds uh, I don't I don't know. It it could get complicated so fast and everything's coming out of one spot that would be unsanitary. Just, oh man! I mean, she does poop out of a different hole. Let's be clear. <laughs> well, that's nice. It's not a cloaca. Come on. <laughs> well, right. That's a whole other ball of wax and species. Indeed. Uh, just, just go on, Victoria. I'm just gonna sit here and be uh, shocked. <laughs> yep. So mating is very difficult for the males. Uh, so during mating, you don't say. Yeah, the female actually retracts the clitoris, leaving a kind of a, a skin sheath. Um, and so the pseudopenis, the pseudopenis is, is flaccid, and it points down and forward. So the male has to like crouch behind and underneath, kind of thrusting up blindly until he finally gets it in. And one article I saw compared it to trying to mate with like a dangling tube sock. <laughs> <laughs> But it does wow. mean it does mean that forced copulation is impossible. So that's that's that a plus nice. for the females. I'll take that. Yeah, Woo-hoo. bonus. It may in fact but be the also, evolutionary one of the evolutionary forces behind the development of this remarkable contraption. Um, that's so a word for it. If that sounds difficult for the males, the shoe is on the other foot when it comes time for a female hyena to give birth because. Kirk is just yeah. not hyenas, hyenas have the largest uh, size of cub relative to the mom's weight of all carnivores at birth. So she has to... Oh, horrifying. God, I didn't know that little fact. That makes this so much worse. Yeah, yeah it really does. Oh, A two-pound two pound cub being pushed through this one-inch wide pseudopenis. Oh, absolutely not. What? No. So the thing 
the yeah. thing tears open. Oh yeah, Rachel, you're horrified. <laughs> no. It it tears uh-huh. open. So a significant uh-huh. a significant percentage of first time hyena mothers do die. I think I read ten percent. I couldn't mm-hmm. confirm that in a scientific article. Um, And up to 60% of all firstborn cubs actually suffocate on the way out because it takes so long. And I guess on subsequent births, things are like looser or like split open faster or something. There's been more tearing going on. So, So, rip open here. Well, it may sound great to be the matriarch, you know, in charge of the hyena clan. Mm -mm, Ladies, you don't want that. You do not. No. So it's sort of like, no, you know what? You go ahead and have the kids this time. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I'm good. So that happened. Yeah. That's that's what I got. I mean, that happens. There is more I could say about hyenas, but I think we're already going along on this episode. So perhaps I shouldn't. (laughs) Well, the hyenas part two. Would it be fair to say you're just bursting with information about hyenas? Oh, that was terrible kirk i know that was a that was a ripping good time <laughs> oh god oh. those poor hyenas and let's just leave it there for our dear dear listeners before we go any further oh my gosh <laughs> thanks victoria you Thank are you. welcome see you next week folks Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.